Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, October 21st. Yesterday, we talked about partisan gerrymandering as a threat to fair representation in the House of Representatives. Today, we turn to Congress's much bigger democracy problem, the Senate. We're titling this segment, The House of Unrepresentatives. And most of you know the basic reason why the Senate is needed to pass any law and to confirm any Supreme Court justices. But every state gets two senators from California, which has 40 million people, to Wyoming, which has barely half a million. And these days, that means conservative rural states have way more power than their proportion in the population. And on top of that, there's the filibuster requiring 60 votes, not 50 plus one, for most things to get passed. You know that. So we'll talk about the history of why that is and if there's anything we can do about it for modern times with democracy journalist David Daly. He's a senior fellow with the group Fair Vote and is best known for his books, Rat Eft, kind of uses the whole word there, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy, and the subsequent book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. David, thanks for coming on to talk about the House of Unrepresentatives. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me on, Brian. You've written in The Guardian that this undemocratic structure of the Senate has become even more relevant these days than in the past due to polarization and population patterns. What do you mean by that? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, Right now, the U.S. Senate is historically and wildly unrepresentative of the American people. Um, The problem, as you laid out, begins with the fact that each state gets two senators so that California has the same representation as Wyoming, even though California is 68 times uh, larger than Wyoming. But there's also 115 American counties that are larger than the state of Wyoming. If you look at the way that American population has changed, when the Senate was originally devised and we had 13 states, it made perfect sense to be sort of a a, a cooling saucer, right? And um, to represent everybody because the population of the bottom seven states at that point in time exceeded the population of the six largest states. That is not the case now. More than half of the 330 million Americans live in nine states. So that means more than 50% of us have 18 senators and the other half has got the other 82. Yeah, these are amazing stats. Uh, that are pretty easy to get your mind around, even when you just hear them go by on the radio, folks. So as David wrote them up in The Guardian, I'm just going to kind of restate what he just said. Um, Pretty easy to understand. According to the 2020 census, two-thirds of the U.S. population lives in just 15 states. That means those two-thirds of the population have just 30 senators, the other one-third of the population has 70 senators. That's pretty mind-blowing, David. It really is. And then when you look at the partisan breakdown there, those 30 senators from the 15 largest states that represent two-thirds of us, 22 Democrats and eight Republicans. 
the other third, those other 70 senators, those states are whiter, they're smaller, they're rural, and they are decisively Republican. 42 Republicans and 28 Democrats there. So you begin to get a, a handle on how this malapportionment not only favors smaller rural whiter interests, but the Republican Party in general. Yeah, the white non-college educated voters who make up the largest part of the Republican coalition nationwide are shrinking in numbers nationwide, as you note in your article, but they're better distributed. So just go one step further into that. What do you mean by better distributed? They are scattered across more states so that they have more political power, whereas the emerging democratic multiracial coalition is really focused in a handful of those larger, smaller, growing states. And this has wildly uh, skewed American politics. So let's talk a little more history, that is, why it's like that in the first place. I think I've been hearing, anyway, that listeners have been really appreciating um, the history portions of these democracy segments we've been doing. And then we'll talk about some proposals people have made to fix it. But historically speaking, you wrote that the system was designed at the founding to protect against tyranny of the majority. Can you explain that concept just really briefly? A lot of people know it, but a lot of people might be confused by that and think, oh, wait, no, we're supposed to have majority rule. That is democracy. So what, what do you mean by tyranny of the majority in that respect and how two senators per state was supposed to help? Sure. Uh, what the founders did was they set up a U.S. House uh, that was largely based on population and the largest states had more say in the House. But they also wanted to establish a branch uh, that uh, favored every state equally because at the time, uh, the, 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 the difference between the size of the states back then was not anywhere near what it is now. Virginia was uh, 12 times larger than Delaware. Uh, so the states were closer to equal, but they still wanted to protect themselves. The smaller states did not want to uh, be pushed around by the larger ones. Right. Was that to protect slave states in any way or mostly to get just smaller population states like Rhode Island to even join the union at all? I think it had to do with uh, both of those factors. Uh, certainly, um, you would not have had a union if you did not uh, create a Senate that um, um, gave every state that kind of equal power within it. Uh, but certainly the key issues that those states were concerned about, uh, you know, uh, uh, very much involved slavery. And as additional states were added to the Union, of course, leading up to the Civil War, um, keeping that balance of, of free states and slave states was crucial. So you quote the late senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who said sometime in the 21st century, the U.S. is going to have to address apportionment in the Senate. Do you know if Moynihan had any specific reforms in mind? You know, I don't know if he did exactly. Uh, certainly there have been a lot of reforms offered over the years. I, I, I'm not sure if Senator Moynihan had any. 
And we're going to go through some of those proposals for reform right now and really for the remaining minutes in this segment. So, for example, the New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie has written deeply on the issue of the Senate being so unrepresentative. And he proposed, for example, that the Senate be remade into something like the Canadian Senate or the British House of Lords. He notes that those bodies in those countries act mainly just to amend legislation that comes out of the House in those countries, and that in Canada, the Senate can reject legislation, but it rarely exercises that power. It has restraint in that respect. He says most democracies by now have structures that empower their lower, more representative bodies and weaken the upper ones. What would it take to do that in this country? That certainly is an important notion. And I think a lot of people, when they think about how you might reimagine the Senate, uh, think of it as as kind of a, a House of Lords. Uh, you might take away some of the power that the Senate has uh, and simply award some of that power back to the House. Um, what you begin to run up against when you think about how you reform the Senate really is the U.S. Constitution, effectively Article 5, which um, mandates that Every state, every state have equal suffrage in the U.S. Senate, and which uh, ascribes specific responsibilities, um, uh, advising consent on treaties, uh, Supreme Court nominations, uh, and so what you would likely need for a, a reform along those lines would probably be a constitutional amendment, which, as we know, are extraordinarily difficult to get passed. Yeah, and especially in this case, I would think, because a constitutional amendment would need to be ratified by, I think it's three quarters of the states, is that right? Um, yeah. So the, why would ma the, many smaller states give up so much power voluntarily? So it's just not going to happen that way, would you say? I think it's not going to happen that way. The trick is that you have a Republican Party right now that has really leaned into and is exploiting the counter-majoritarian um, uh, features of our system, uh, the idea that they would simply decide to give that advantage up, I think is um, deeply unlikely looking at today's party. Yeah. And not just the Republican Party, but why would any small state, regardless of its partisan makeup, I would imagine, mm -hmm. vote to voluntarily give up its, its power in the federal government? An article in The Atlantic in 2019 aggregated other proposals for making the Senate more representative. It cited, for example, a proposal to break up large states into smaller ones. That came from Bert Newborn of NYU. There was one from Akhil Amar of Yale Law School who suggested a national referendum to reform the Senate. I'm not sure if that would get around the constitutional amendment requirement, uh, but maybe. And the retired Congressman John Dingell proposed that the Senate simply be abolished. Many democracies have only a single legislative body, not two. So are any of those ideas more realistic than adding more senators to larger states? I'm not convinced that any of those ideas are any more realistic or that they don't bump against the uh, uh, same constitutional constraints. Um, I think if we want to fix this, though, there certainly are ways to do so. It's an extraordinarily uphill uh, push 
it will run up against constitutional language. It could run up against the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that um, could could step in as well. Uh, but there was a proposal by a professor um, at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, which I think is really the best and and most realistic way to go. And I say most realistic, given the fact that the, the chance of, of many of these reforms is small. But what this professor advocates for is every state continues to have one U.S. senator. So that keeps the idea of federalism and equality strong um, and consistent. But then that remaining senators would be divided up proportionally based on on population. So you would have another dozen states that would still have two, um, a handful of states that might have three or four senators, and then the four largest states, California, Texas, New York, um, and Florida would get 12, 9, 6, and 6, respectively. Um, and that would have a lot of advantages, right? Um, you could see how that would help address the Electoral College you could imagine how you might see Democrats and Republicans elected from some of these states so that uh, Texas might be represented both by Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, which, which could go a long way towards reducing political polarization. And what this professor suggests is that if this were to be passed simply as a statute, uh, the Senate Reform Act of uh, uh, 2022, mm-hmm. you could find a way around that constitutional language. Interesting. I guess that would wind up at the Supreme Court in a debate over whether it would require a constitutional amendment to make that kind of change. Um, short of that, adding Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. as states would help a little bit mathematically, toward a more fair representation. They don't need a constitutional amendment to do that. And they could at least end the filibuster. So the Senate could pass things with 51% rather than 60. And ironically, under the rules, a lot of people may not know this, but they could abolish the filibuster without being subject to the filibuster. In other words, they could abolish it with 51 votes. But currently, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema won't support that, so the Democrats don't have the votes to do it on their own. But I'm also curious, David, if you think, with your pro-democracy hat on, it would be a good thing for democracy or not. I can imagine a scenario where next year the Republicans have a slim majority in the Senate, not the Democrats, and the Democrats start using the filibuster to block what they consider some of the worst reactionary legislation like abortion bans and voter suppression and whatever. Um, so I, I, I wonder if you think being for or against the filibuster just depends who's in the minority, who is the minority party at that moment, and that determines who's for it and against it. Or is there some you know, underlying common thread of just what's better for democracy regardless of who's in power? I think Democrats need to think deeply on that point. Uh, if Democrats do, in fact, lose control of the Senate in 2022, the map, as you progress towards 2024, looks extraordinarily difficult for them. They'll have to be defending those seats in West Virginia and Montana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, states that Democrats uh, have lost just a, a, 
a statewide uh, fairly regularly. And the, the the most competitive pickups in 2024 for Democrats will be places like Texas and Florida, where they have not really had any success statewide. Um, on the other hand, you know, American democracy in many ways is a frog in the pot, right? And the the, the water is getting very, very hot. Um, and we are running out of time to make the sort of fixes that we need to make before the anti-majoritarianism of these structures uh, collapses upon us. And so I think we really have to find a way to change these filibuster rules in such a way that we can um, reform these structures and fix them before it's too late to do so. And I do fear that um, the clock is ticking. Uh, I guess making the Senate more than what I've been calling the House of Unrepresentatives is hard, yet people, as we just discussed, are having this conversation and not just assuming any proposal to reform the Senate is a dead end, dead on arrival. So we thank democracy journalist David Daly, senior fellow with the group Fair Vote, and author of books including Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, for having it with us. David, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.